It's Friday, October 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Beware of higher prices for everyday items. You'll be paying more for everything from coffee to toilet paper, and big companies are betting that you'll keep paying those prices. Procter & Gamble, Nestle, Verizon, and others all plan to continue raising prices and push customers to more expensive products well into 2022. This is all to help offset the growing cost of the supply chain crisis. Sharon Turlip, consumer products reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for why companies think you'll stick with them as things get more expensive. Next, Halloween means it's time for spooky movies, and horror movies in general have had quite the evolution. Some of the best horror movies have acted as a mirror, reflecting our own fears of the time back at us and built upon each other to get us where we are today. From the early days of the classic movie monsters to the slashers and serial killer flicks, all the way to modern horror movies, they all have been commentaries on what is going on in the world at the time. Next step will be to see how the pandemic impacts the horror genre. Asia Romano, culture writer at Vox, joins us for the horror century of movies. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So, uh, you know, if you look at the cell phone carriers, they're saying, well, we're just going to offer more premium high-end packages, and that's how we're going to get higher prices. So they're actually giving more, but expecting that consumers have enough extra money that they're going to pay more. Joining us now is Sharon Turlep, consumer products reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sharon. Sure. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about higher prices coming to consumers. U.S. companies right now are, are actually betting that shoppers are going to keep paying these higher prices. They kind of have no choice in some cases. But, uh, you know, a lot of these companies are saying, you know, our, our consumers are going to stick with us. They're going to keep doing it. And we know this because they're telling their investors uh, to expect uh, revenue growth even as they continue to do this. So, um, Sharon, uh, tell us what's going on, because we've seen, obviously, the industry, all the industries be deeply impacted by supply chain issues, inflation. But these companies are still thinking that consumers are going to keep up with these higher prices. Sure. Yeah. Well, and what we're seeing is the biggest companies, so the biggest makers of food, household products, restaurant chains, cell phone companies, there's two things that, that are going on. They have the most recognizable brands. So there's a lot of demand for their brands, especially when you look at household products and what people gravitate to in times of kind of crisis and hardship. And these are companies that have the ability to work around or through some of these supply chain issues that some of their smaller rivals just, just can't do. And so what kind of price increases are we seeing? Because I, And for what products specifically? I know it's uh, home products, razors, things like that. As you mentioned, um, some of the big companies, Nestle is uh, obviously raising prices of coffee. You know, a lot of people are spending more time at home. So uh, what kind of products, what kind of price increases are we seeing? So we're seeing two things. One thing is just price increases. So the same product now costs more. And we're seeing that around almost every household packaged food item, be it toilet paper, diapers, razors, face cream, coffee, candy, snacks. And then what we're also seeing is these companies are confident that people are willing to pay more for better products. So, uh, you know, if you look at the cell phone carriers, they're saying, well, we're just going to offer more premium high-end packages, and that's how we're going to get higher prices. So they're actually giving more, but expecting that consumers have enough extra money that they're going to pay more. 
And the bet is that they think consumers still have a lot of extra extra cash from things like stimulus payments, things that they saved while they were going through the pandemic, and and even shifting that money to more things at home versus going out and going on vacations, eating out, all that stuff. This is where they they say the consumer has more money. And the big question, though, is when will shoppers start seeking out those cheaper items? This is kind of that gamble right now. It's definitely a gamble. I mean, I think particularly, you know, Procter & Gamble tends to sell higher-end items. One of their hot sellers is, a, you know, a $300 electric toothbrush. So it's products that have more features, but also are quite expensive. And, you know, there's the same thing that's causing the supply chain problems. People are spending their money on things as opposed to services. So that's why, you know, that's why everything's caught up in shipping. But it also means that people are willing to pay some on Wall Street, you know, you're starting to see the first kind of, you know, a little bit of hand wringing over, you know, yes, but when home heating and gas prices and car prices, you know, when these all increase, are we going to see an end or a kind of a, you know, reduction in this willingness to spend money? You did speak to a few consumers and they all kind of said the same, you know, similar thing, I guess, uh, really don't have a choice. Even those that said, okay, maybe we will start seeking out some cheaper items still said, you know what, but I'm probably not going to change my habits that much. I'm probably going to stay you know, loyal to these big brands, kind of what you were saying at the beginning. Yeah, and that's, you know, because when consumers cut back, typically it's not, you know, they don't, it's not saving money on laundry detergent. You know, it's often bigger expenses. And when people feel kind of more confined to their homes, and this is certainly the phenomenon we've seen in COVID, it's like, hey, I want to get the you know, I want my clothes to be the softest. You know, I want to trust my cleaning products more. I want them to smell good. So you know, it's almost counterintuitive in that the more kind of stuck at home and the more uncertain thing are, things are, the more people are willing to spend on these smaller kind of household items. U.S. grocers, the supermarkets, all that, they've been insulating consumers from some of the price increases too, because Obviously, the companies sell them to the retailers and then the retailers set the prices for us. They're getting to the point where they're going to start raising those prices as well. But there has this been kind of little safety net, I guess, for the consumers, maybe why some people haven't noticed it as much even. And there's two reasons people haven't noticed. So first is exactly as you said, the increases that have been around maybe in the 5% range that the companies have announced. And then the retailers may offset that. So you may be seeing increases more one or, you know, along the lines of one or 2%. And another factor is that it takes a long time for these prices to get out to the market. So P&G, you know, it was much earlier this year announced price increases. They only started to take effect in September. So for a couple of reasons, consumers haven't seen all these increases yet, you know, in their pocketbooks. And the last thing uh, I wanted to mention, because technology and artificial intelligence is always looming, a lot of these companies know how you shop, so it allows them to set this pricing in a much more targeted manner. So if they know you're a discount shopper, you know, they'll push some of those discounts to you. If they know that you're one that pays full price for things, well, you're going to continue to keep paying full price and probably more. Yeah, absolutely. There's variation right down to the consumer. And even when it comes to locations, you know, um, you know, conventional wisdom might say an urban, you know, a store in a big city like New York or Chicago would have higher prices. However, if you're a store in kind of a grocery desert where you know that the people don't have any other options in rural America, prices also could be higher there. I mean, so it, it really, you know, there's not like one, a one cost for any item. It just varies widely. Sharon Turlep, consumer products reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. 
Joining us now is Asia Romano, culture writer at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Asia. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about horror movies. You recently wrote an article called The Horror Century, basically looking at how horror movies have evolved, built on top of each other, and really posed as a reflection to American life and obviously the world as well, but really just posed as a reflection to what's going on at the time. I love horror movies. I've been trying to get as many in as possible, you know, right now that it's uh, we're getting up onto Halloween and everything. Um, so it was a perfect time to talk about this. Let's start off with with that, though, just kind of how these horror movies really are a reflection of what we're seeing, uh, what we're seeing at the time. I think it's great that you love horror. I think a lot of people do love horror and instinctively recognize that about horror, that, you know, there's something about a movie that looks at what we fear and what we're afraid of and that kind of gets at this collective subconscious anxiety, right? Sometimes we may not really understand what we're afraid of until we see a horror movie that allegorizes it for us, right? And I think we see that um, throughout the, the cinema century. If we look back at sort of the trajectory of these films, you know, from from like the monster movies of the Universal era, right? Where these monsters were sort of standing in, standing in for very like concrete things through to like the more allegorical films of like the 60s and 70s. And, and even now today, we have lots of movies that are really nebulous and, and metaphorical and, and really kind of cool in the way that they the more abstract they are, the more you can like read into them and project right. your own fears onto them. Pre-war Hollywood, uh, you know, the big monster type movies, the popularized by Universal Studios, uh, you know, uh, Dracula, Frankenstein, you know, we're looking at actors like Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff, Lon Chaney. How did these play out? Films like these, you know, are being made after World War One, right? And so they, people are really kind of reeling from this, from the first modern war, right? So you have uh, things that are sort of like the, a lot of the plots of these movies are kind of pitting the old world against the new world, right? Like this idea of tradition um, being obliterated in the wake of uh, in the wake of modernity and and you know, uh, modern cities and lots of these monsters, these supernatural creatures, kind of invading these really urbane cosmopolitan cities and just sort of taking over everything. Obviously, these kind of set up so much for the future as well, you know, talking about how other uh, movies build upon that. Um, you know, these monsters uh, themselves, especially, as I mentioned, from Universal Studios, uh, really just the class, the big classic monsters that were that are have been around since then. Right. Uh, very different variations as well. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of these really deal directly with the idea of the other, the other with a capital O, this idea that people who sort of control the narrative can often turn someone, you know, turn the, the quote unquote other into a scapegoat for all kinds of anxieties, right? And project all kinds of fears onto them. And a lot of times these films are really exploring either directly or indirectly what happens when the quote other is connected directly to the self somehow, right? Like, you know, you have things like the invisible man or the wolf man or like cat people even you know this idea that the protagonist could be the person who is 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 somehow corrupted and turned into the evil and then of course you have that that basic kind of morality like moral um dilemma being plumbed throughout horror and really built on through you know as we get into more modern crises like the like the environmental crises films of the, the 50s and 60s and so forth. And and then, of course, then today with all kinds of, of deconstructions of that idea. Right. 
Yeah, let's talk. Let's move on to post-war, kind of this atomic age where we do see a lot of environmental and technology, uh, you know, alien monstrosities. That was a huge uh, factor for even these huge, big monster movies like Godzilla. You know, a, a big uh, impact on Japanese films and uh, things that we saw also uh, here on the American side. Right, exactly. And I think that's really interesting to think about in terms of how we view, like right now, I think a lot of our anxieties are really apocalyptic. And what's unique about, you know, the Godzilla films is that they were, they arose in the wake of an actual apocalypse, right? Like this is Japan's kind of attempt to really grapple with, you know, the worst thing that could possibly happen to humanity having just happened to them, you know? And, and so Godzilla was really an interesting figure because he represents not only the worst that mankind can do, but he represents sort of the ability to rebuild and um, to kind of reclaim, uh, reclaim a sense of control over the atomic age. And he ultimately, you know, in many films later in the franchise becomes kind of a friend to, uh, and like an ally to humans and <laughs> to right. some degree. So, we also saw the rise of uh, bad kids, scary kids in the 60s, uh, you know, movies like The Bad Seed and, uh, and others, you know, Children of the Corn, things like that. So uh, obviously that, that's all extends. Everything builds upon each other. But, you know, these are the kind of the first times where we're seeing these scary kids come up, too. And you think about that as a, you know, a, a reaction to, you know, 50s modern housewivery. Right. And like the the way that uh, in the post-war era, you had women like really, really claiming um, their territory as, you know, suburban moms and so forth. And you had this idea of, of, you know, modern feminism sort of sprouting seed and taking root in, in the collective conscious and the, the dark underbelly of that, I think is what we see in these types of movies where you have these, you know, cherubic little girls and boys being raised in these idyllic households, but yet there's something warped and twisted about them right and like what that does to your idea of like the the modern picket fence family and so forth right so yeah i think that's really and and that of course really kind of is a, a precursor to all of the psychosexual madness that happens in horror films in the 60s and 70s yeah that's the next phase of it right the psychosexuality the occult serial killers really became huge there i mean you started off with psycho but you get into things like halloween texas chainsaw massacre you will see uh, kind of uh, more you know, more blood in these movies where you wouldn't see so much of that before Exactly. And, you know, a lot of the, the films of the 50s, whether they're horror or not, are characterized, and even before the 50s, um, the whole, basically up until the 1950s, cinema is sort of characterized to a degree by this idea of repression, because you have the Hollywood Hayes Code really kind of putting a, a, a layer of censorship over everything and what you can, can and can't say and do and show on screen, right? But then in 1968, uh, the Hayes Code ended and, and that censorship was, was, lift, was lifted, basically. And from that point on, it was kind of like all bets were off. So you really have this period of gleeful unrepression, I think, of all of these more sordid themes and ideas. And that really, I think, ties into the idea of all of the occult activity that you had in horror films of the period. You had lots of explorations of Satanism, lots of things like demonic possession and other types of like supernatural activity that really were supposed to kind of mirror the the way that basically like the human psyche was kind of breaking down in response to modernity, I think. For sure. And so that's why you, when you get these big, big films like The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby, right, that were just so seismically impactful in terms of how they changed our ideas of Satan, basically. 
Let's uh, move on to kind of the next part, you know, the pre 9-11 era civilization can't protect you. you. You talk a lot about how American modernity, how things happened in malls. You're really not safe anywhere in, in all of this. Uh, you know, we talk about movies like The Gremlins, one of my favorites also too, Nightmare on Elm Street. You're mm-hmm. really everywhere is fair game for, for horror now. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one big one big characteristic of, of horror films of like the 80s and so forth is that they play around with this idea that there's nowhere that's really safe. And I think that's such a powerful idea because we see it play out everywhere, whether it's on the beach in Jaws or whether it's in shopping malls, right, during with the, the zombie trilogy, Romero, Romero zombie trilogy, or even in your dreams with something like Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and I think the kind of the... the pinnacle film of that of that idea is the Blair Witch Project where you have these kids that are really like modern like even today they still come across as like modern very modern and like current kids you know they've been raised in a very safe environment and very you know like you know by people with all the privilege that the the Reagan era afforded economically right so they're these very self-assured kids they're from college they're going into the woods for what's supposed to be this you know easy student documentary film weekend right and then everything goes to hell and all of the like these these this huge like van full of assorted trappings that they brought with them from civilization just proves completely inadequate and they wind up like arguing over a map in the woods right and that map basically kind of becomes sort of a before and after point you can think of horror cinema like because before like basically with the Blair Witch Project there's this idea that you have this map and it's lost. Like you're completely off the map. Like here there'd be dragons. Right. right. Um, but then nine 11 happens. And I think with nine 11, you have this emerging idea that I think horror really plays with that. There never was a map to begin with and we're all lost and we're all just sort of waking up to the bleakness of that idea. Right. And you, and we see a kind of reinterpretation of a bunch of traditional horror formulas after this. But as you mentioned, it kind of like how horror looks like in the real world connections to to loss and other violence and things like that and and this is kind of what happens post 9-11 exactly and to some extent you had this set up with uh with with scream basically with the advent of scream in 1996 um and how that allowed horror to really kind of become self-aware overnight and we really saw that the trajectory the progression of that play out throughout the 2000s and and even into today um you have sort of this idea of genres talking to each other of, of the genre talking directly to the audience in some ways. And it all sort of plays with, within this, this realm of this idea that there are no narrative rules anymore. So then you have films like, like you have films like 28 Days Later that are, um, you know, it's a traditional playing with a traditional zombie um, formula, but it's layering all these other really dark uh, nihilistic commentaries about, uh, about social decay and, man's inhumanity to man and so forth, like on top of it in this way that really kind of really refreshes the genre. Asia Romano, culture writer at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>